You know, seeds are truly miraculous. And you know, it's impossible to truly describe. And I'm not a botanist. I didn't study botany in school, by the way. One class. Uh, <laughs> it is truly amazing. And to think that Jesus is known as the seed throughout history. And that seed, see, there's this story that is, that is shared. Story, not really a story, but is, is one of Paul's arguments in the book of Hebrews. And he is describing why Melchizedek is of greater position than Aaron, the high priest. The argument is, why is Jesus' high priesthood more important than Aaron's? Because God appointed Aaron. He chose the Levites. So why would Melchizedek have a greater and more important priesthood? And his argument is actually one of seed. And it is basically that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Abraham paid tithes to, uh, to Melchizedek. So it's like, okay, so Paul, what's so big about that? How does that somehow show that the priesthood of Aaron is lesser of importance than the priesthood of Jesus? Because in Abraham was Aaron. It's actually the argument. He was in Abraham. He was in his loins, as it says in the King James. I will not go into explaining that. <laughs> but Aaron was in the loins of Abraham. Isn't that an incredible thought? And so he makes the argument. He says, and so Aaron, in Abraham, paid tribute to Melchizedek. So even Aaron comes under Melchizedek because of the principle of a seed. That in Abraham is every descendant of Abraham. And so when Abraham did something like pay tribute to Melchizedek, anyone of Abraham's lineage was paying tribute to Melchizedek in that time. That's an amazing statement. Now I want you to realize there is a statement in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, that is so utterly impossible for us to wrap our little pea brain minds around but it's based on the same principle of a seed, which is why I just prefaced this with it. Because if you don't understand the principle of a seed, then this is rather confusing. Who are you a descendant of? Now you could say, uh, Adam. Okay, then that would actually be a correct answer. But there is someone that is the last Adam that you are a descendant of when you are grafted in to Jesus Christ. And that is, you are now a descendant of Jesus Christ. See, we are actually, as Christians, able to be grafted into the family of Abraham. And we are of, Jesus is a, was in the loins, if you will, of Abraham. But we are, of a higher order, we are of the descendants of Jesus Christ. We are grafted, we are adopted in. And everything that is given to Jesus, and everything that, this is the tricky one. Everything that Jesus accomplished, we were in him when he accomplished it. And so it was just as it says of Abraham that he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And we're like, what's so big about that? Well, if you understand that, I don't want to say we were in the loins of Jesus. It gets a little awkward. But the point is, we were. We were in Christ when he died upon that cross. And the death he died was good for us. And we died with him. We're like, I wasn't even alive. How in the world could I have died that death? How could I, if he died to sin, how did I die to sin 2,000 years ago? I wasn't even around. 
You died in him. Now, how in the world does someone like Eric Lee get up in front of an audience and explain this? This is a little difficult. How do you explain that 2,000 years ago you died? Uh, I don't know. That's why I'm trying to right now. Because, you know, this argument that Paul used. I figure if it's good for Paul, I can use it too. Let's read Romans 6. Because last, last week we talked about the blood. The efficaciousness of the blood, which means it is able and fully effective to help you in your situation. See, it is not the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of bulls and goats can cover sin and enable you to maintain a relationship with God, but it cannot purge your conscience, and it cannot deal with the problem of sin either, because you will continue to keep coming back, and you will continue to need the blood of bulls and goats. Now, I will also say you will continue to need the blood of Jesus, but his blood is efficacious to deal with the problem that you have. And to go beyond where you, where you typically just have a covering, to a washing, to a cleansing, to a purging of your conscience. The enemy can no longer hound you with his accusations. Ben earlier gave a, a scripture from Hebrews. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. In other words, the same way that he stood for you back then is the same way he stands for you now. He will stand for you. If the enemy is hounding you, condemning you, judging you, doing his best to get you into a corner and say, God doesn't want you. Your Jesus, if you will call upon him, the merits of his shed blood will stand between you and the enemy and silence him because he covers you. His blood is good for you, not just when you first pray, but now. And that is an extraordinary revelation. But one of the things that that revelation opens a door to is the concept of saying that means that no matter what I do I can always come back and get forgiveness think about that logic which is exactly what Paul was setting the stage for in Romans he's saying yes it's true that is the merit of Christ's blood but listen to the first line what shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound that we can prove oh I'm just showing I'm just proving to the universe that God is a gracious God I'm just showing everyone. That's why I'm sitting like this. That's why I'm living selfishly. It's so that I can show everyone how gracious my God is, because he'll keep forgiving me. You don't even have the substance of Christianity, probably, if that's the way you're living. You haven't seen the cross. When you see the cross, you are broken to pieces to realize that Jesus died for you, and his blood was shed to cover you. You do not take it lightly. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's Paul's answer. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And you see, he just made this statement. And a lot of us just read right over that because it's like, it's just nice sounding rhetoric. We are dead to sin. Do you feel dead to sin? Is that your experience in your Christian life, dead to sin? Oh, it's wonderful being dead to sin. It really doesn't mean anything. It's just nice sounding terminology. Because all of us are very alive to sin. At least that's the way it seems to play out for most of us. So here Paul has the audacity to say, uh, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And he just makes it sound so easy. It's just like, hey, you're dead to sin. Why would you live in it any longer? Like, yeah, yeah we're going to speak at Paul. What in the world are you talking about? <laughs> Listen to this. Know ye not 
that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Yeah, I want you to realize, these statements are so epic and grand, and we have a tendency to skip right over them because we don't relate to them. We don't feel that version of Christianity coursing through our existence, and so we just move on. But I want you to realize, Romans 6 has been historically literally one of the most important chapters in the church. This is the definition of the cross. This is what happened at the cross. We cannot just look over it and say, oh yeah, well, you know, obviously. What happens in Romans 7 is where most Christians live. They live in Romans 7, but they fail to realize that Romans 7 is sandwiched between Romans 6 and Romans 8. And Romans 7 would appear, if it was taken out of context, to be a statement of justifying why when we want to live a certain way, we can't. I want to. I esteem in my mind the law. I see esteem righteousness. I want to live this, God. But there is nothing inside me that can perform it. Because there's a problem in you. You must come to the cross. Because the cross will deal with your issue. Romans 6 states it not just clearly, so clearly that you don't even have an answer. You are stunned silent if you actually take this seriously. Either Paul is sort of rambling for a little, for an entire chapter, going, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Until I get my act together in Romans 7, I'm just going to talk a little. Oh, I figured it out, Romans 7. And then he loses control again in Romans 8 and starts talking about the victorious Christian life. And he's like, oh, what am I doing again? Romans 7 is context-based. It is written to Hebrews who lived under the law, and all they knew was the guilt of condemnation. That's all they can understand, because the law was a schoolmaster which would lead them to their savior, their messiah, their rescuer, who could deal the death blow to their problems. And not just cover their sin like the blood of bulls and goats could, but deal with the problem of sin in their existence. This is paramount in the Christian existence. This is what breeds a strong church of Jesus Christ. And if you remove it, you end up with impotence. I don't want to go into a definition of it. It's the lack of power, the lack of strength. You cannot perform. And God has called us to live an extraordinary life, a life that showcases the supernatural realm, one that showcases the power of the living God on planet Earth. But if you don't have this, you don't have anything. You don't have even the basics of what Christianity is. For Listen to this. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I'm not making this up. You can check it out in your Bible. That we should not serve sin. Now, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Well, that means you have to be dead. How can you get dead? You ever felt that? I need to get dead. Something's wrong with me because I'm still alive. This is one of the number one problems that we as Christians deal with is we're looking at ourselves and our right hand is still waving around, causing us problems, hitting us in the face. We're like, get this thing dead. We are still alive and yet it says, for a he that is dead is freed from sin. We're like, well, there's my problem. I'm not dead. So then we try and get dead. 
And it's hard to get dead. It's hard to, you know, take life out of yourself. It's difficult. Which is a, this is a very important thing. This is why Jesus did it for you. Jesus, you died in Christ. You died 2,000 years ago. You just don't know it yet. That's what this whole message is about. This is going to seem totally flabbergasting, okay? If you've never had this taught to you before, this is actually seemingly ridiculous. And all I'm doing is saying what it says in Scripture. This is preposterous. That's the best word. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not, Paul said, makes it sound so easy. Let not therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as righteousness, I'm sorry, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Summary, <clears throat> you have a body, this hand, you choose this day. Reckon it is true that you died. Your old man is dead. That thing that is compelling you to do what you don't want to do is powerless in your life. You should reckon it as so and begin to live as if what this says is true. That sin has no control over you. It cannot boss you around. It cannot command you to do anything. But in fact, the opposite is true. Righteousness has control over you. In the same way you used to be controlled by sin, find yourself compelled to do the ridiculous things that you were doing. Now righteousness has a hold on you, and it compels you. How many of us can relate to this? That is why I'm saying this seemingly is preposterous to Christianity today. But I am not giving you anything that is outlandish in Scripture. I'm just giving you Scripture. This is what Paul said. And most of us, our doctrine for defeat and the explanation for why we live in defeat also supposedly comes from Paul. In the next chapter, that's what's ironic. We leverage chapter 7 and say, well, this is my explanation. Even Paul was still living under sin. When in fact, Paul himself is the one that is saying, yield not your members to unrighteousness. Should we keep on sinning? Absolutely not. You are dead to sin. Your old man was crucified. Why in the world would you continue in it? This guy is either crazy, and he can't figure out which ends up, and he's just confusing all of us throughout Christian history. Like, what? And we have to choose our chapter. Are you a Roman 6 Christian, or are you a Roman 7 Christian? We just sort of have to potluck pick it. You know, it's like, I, pre I prefer Salisbury steak over, you know, filet mignon. I'm going to choose chapter 7. So you notice I sort of put down chapter 7 there in that one. Uh, in other words, it's a cheap man's gospel. It's one that wants to explain away why Christianity doesn't work, as opposed to one that comes to Scripture and says, hey, there's more in here. And for some reason, chapter 7 isn't explaining it all. I need to understand this. There is victory to be had, but it is only had when you understand what leads into 7. And that is Calvary, the cross. There is something that transpired on that cross, and we must grasp it. 
Now, I have that little quote from last week there. The blood deals with our sins. The cross deals with our sin. We have a problem. Now, for me, it's known as Old Eric. You have your own name to it. In the Bible, it's called the old man. And, you know, that's sort of a funny thing. Here you are like a 15-year-old guy, and it's like the old man. You know, that's what you're supposed to call your dad, you know, when you're sort of one of those rebellious types. Yeah, my old man. You know, so it's a little awkward to call your old man an old man because he's not very old. He's old. The ancestry of this old man goes all the way back to Adam. You know that you are in Adam, in the loins of Adam. What Adam did, you did. That's a strange one for you. Try and swallow that one. What Adam did, when Adam sinned, all sinned. He, his behavior, ridiculous rebellion against God, for some reason, has tainted you. And you're affected by it. And you're lugging around this old man, this body of sin. You are distorted. You are not as you ought to be. Righteousness means as a man ought to be. And you are unrighteous. And all your attempts at being righteous or being as you ought to be are as filthy rags to God. You cannot do it. Why? Because you're missing the engine. You cannot come up with your own way of being righteous. It doesn't work that way. There's only one who is righteous, and that is God. So until God comes into you and puts that engine of himself inside of you, you cannot perform anything correctly. So we are wrong. We are twisted. We are perverted. There is something just off base with us. That's the old man. And as long as you lug around this old man, the old man controls. The old man has his way of doing things. He's been doing it. That's why all humans are just alike. You, can, you don't have to be some brilliant scholar to know that I know what's going on inside me. But how do you know what's going on inside? Because I'm human. You're human. Yeah, I've lived in sin. I know what it's like. I know what goes on in the mind. I know the compulsions of the flesh. I know it. How in the world can we be so known? Hey, this is sort of embarrassing. I don't want someone else reading my mail. It's because we're human. It's the old man. And the old Eric is actually very similar to the old version of you, too. And it's bad news. It's selfish. It's all about you. It, it's all self-protective. We can come up with a gloss to it, you know, make it sound like we're doing nice things and good deeds, help old ladies across the street, you know, and then look around to see who noticed. And people can say, oh, you're just a really nice guy. Really, thank you. <laughs> the old man can do nice things, but the old man is rotten to the core because the old man is all about self. The old man is in defiance against Jesus Christ because the old man is sitting on a throne that rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ, saying, mine. This is my life. This is my body. This is my hand. These are my eyes. This is my mouth. I will let my tongue speak whatever I want it to speak. I don't want someone outside of me controlling it. It's the old man. We have a problem with the old man. Which is why this is so important. Because the old man will, if, if in control, and if left alive, will destroy your life. The wages of sin, isn't this what Paul said? Or death. So if you work for the old man, and you're his slave, he's like, yeah, this is what I want you to do. Okay, I want you to clean this up over here. All right, I want you to do this, make this mess over here. If you work for the old man, he pays pitiful. He pays you with debt. That's his wage. And I don't know why we hang around and work for this guy. And why would we? He's a terrible taskmaster. And many of us have been under the thumb of sin for so many years. We're like, I'm sick and tired of this. And Jesus is like, hey, <laughs> bucko. I got a solution for you. I gave up my life for you. What are you doing? 
What are you doing living with this as your taskmaster? I've dealt with the old man. Well, how did you deal with the old man? Well, what it says here, I mean, let me see if I can read that again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Well, wait a minute, I'm still lugging around my old man. How in the world is it crucified within 2,000 years ago? Because it seems very much alive to me. This, is, this little gymnastic routine, whatever we're going to call it, to work through is so utterly critical. Because here's what we do. If you've, and I've said this to you before, but if you base your understanding off of what you feel, off of what you know, you very rarely will come to God truth. If you try and reason it through in your head, as opposed to saying, you need to realize the enemy's number one objective is to distort truth. He wants to let you know that your old man is very much alive. He doesn't mind that. And when the way you need to know the old man is there is you're awakened to the law. You're awakened to truth. You're awakened to righteousness. That's when your conscience is awakened. And you realize something's wrong with me. Many of you have felt this. When you lived in sin and you were separate from Jesus Christ, you didn't know. You didn't care. You didn't want to know. You covered your ears. Like, ah, no, I can't hear anything. You didn't want to know. But then when you came to Jesus or when Jesus began to come to you, something was alerted within your soul and you realized I'm wrong. Something's wrong with me. Then you try and fix it. You can't. You can't fix it. The enemy at that point wants to encourage the notion that you must be the one to fix the problem. You better get, deal with the sin nature that you have. You better figure out a way to kill it. And so we're trying to stomp on it. We're trying to do whatever we can. It's like that one game uh, with the gophers where they pop their head up, you know, and then one pops up over here. No matter what you do, you can't stop it. It has a life of its own that's a lot stronger than you. So I've used that illustration in the past of a lamb against a lion. It's like a lamb trying to take on a lion. It's, it's losing. It's a losing battle from the very beginning. You realize that the shepherd has dealt the blow to the lion. And that lion doesn't want you to know it. That your old man actually has no power over your life. He has been stripped of all his power. How do you get it? How do you access this? The secret key that Scripture reveals to us is everything of God is accessed through the key of faith. In other words, you have to reckon it as so. Faith, if we want to say it this way, is merely the reality or the truth of God's kingdom and us treating it as if it's true and living accordingly. That's what God says. He's right. You know when God says something in his word, he's 100% correct? He doesn't accidentally slip up in Scripture and go, oh, great, what do I do with that now? It's out there. I, you know, I accidentally spoke that to Paul, and now he's running around and it's all translated all over the place. I don't know what to do with it. When he speaks it, it's 100% fact. Now, this is an interesting thing. Most of us, when we think about faith, it's more fairy taleish dreamland. In other words, we're saying, no, I want to believe it. I want to believe it. And so we tell ourselves over and over again. I was reading about a Christian this week that read this scripture where it says, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves, ye also yourselves, to be dead indeed unto sin. So for seven years of his Christian life, he spent trying to reckon it. You know what reckon means? It's an accounting term. Which basically means <clears throat> to input it into the ledger as if it's an accurate amount or it's factual. Okay, now if I gave you $13, you know, and you had it in hand, 
you would reckon yourself to have $13. Okay, now say you have your little accounting book and your, your little register. And so you're saying, I have $13. And you put it in there. And if someone says, how much do you have? You say, uh, I have $13, thank you. Okay, you'd be confident in it. You wouldn't be walking away and I go, I don't know, I have $12. I might have all two. You know how much it is. You reckoned it as true to you. It is true in reality, and it is also now true to you because you saw it. You tangibly interacted with this. Now, most of us think that faith is made up of some illusionary concept where we try and talk ourselves into something being true. Whereas this is supposedly true, but now I need to whip up some type of emotion or some type of feeling that causes me to feel like it's more true, even though it's totally bogus in the first place. It's mind over matter stuff. That isn't faith. God says this is true. Well, then guess what? It's true. If he said he died 2,000 years ago, guess what? It's true. If he says he rose again on the third day, guess what? It's true. So we can understand historical things because that's more tangible. But when he says that your old man was crucified with him, we're like, ah, I don't know about that. Whoa, what was that I just heard from your soul? Your mind that is fighting this off when you say, well, I don't know about that. That's because it's not real to you. You've experienced something different. Have you ever heard the, the story about uh, three characters in fact, faith, and experience? There's a ridge pole top of a barn. You know, it's really narrow. And it's really hard to walk. So it's like, whoa! Okay? And fact goes out ahead. And fact is walking. And, you know, fact is just moving on along. Because fact is stable. It's sturdy. It's just reality. It's the way things are. So fact is moving right along that ridge pole without any, any balance issues. Faith is coming along. You know, faith is actually doing really good as long as it keeps its eyes on fact. It keeps walking without any topple, without any stagger, without any wavering. But then behind faith is a character named experience. And experience is all over the place. Oh, whoa! And experience says to faith, could someone turn around and look at me? I need some help here. Faith was going along just fine until he turned around to see how experience was doing. And when he checked in with experience, experience was off balance, he fell off the roof, and guess what? Faith followed along. If faith turns around and checks with experience, faith goes toppling. Why? Because this is the prince, the prince of this world, known as Satan. He owns this world. The natural elements are under his control. He is interested in duping you to say this is more real than what God reveals in his word. And God says, I have a test for you. Do you believe that I am more real than this liar? Because he will do his best to try and con you out of my truth. But I'm telling you, you died with me. 2,000 years ago. You were in me. So how do you access this truth? Well, I struggle to have the, that juicy, great metaphor for this. Because basically, when you're saying Jesus Christ, you'll notice the title of this is In Christ. In. I could have just called this message In. Because there's, you know, when, when you can enter into something, that means there's space to enter into. So you have to have something to come into. So it's hard when we're talking about being in Christ. It just doesn't gel with our mental capacity very well. So we have to give a metaphor with space in it. In other words, like I've been thinking, a, a tank. Because you know, God is powerful. So I don't like the thought of, oh, he's a box. No, he's more than a box, but he's more than a tank, too. So I'm not exactly sure what illustration that could really capture this, okay? If we use the illustration of a tank, okay? When you enter in 
to that tank. Hey, suddenly there's strength. There's fortification. Suddenly there's confidence that you've never had. The enemy can't just come at you. Comes out at you with his gun. You know, that gun used to always take you down. You know, his little fiery darts and his little bullets that he was shooting at you. You're in a tank now. <laughs> okay, you entered in to a tank. And guess what? You're laughing at the enemy. Through one of those, like, speaker systems. Like, Because you're not about to pop your head up, are you? When the, when the Japanese invaded China, they came in and destroyed. One of their first tactical things was to destroy the tanks. And so literally, the armament of the Japanese was overwhelming the Chinese. And so the Chinese didn't have a response. And they were literally just being, you know, bowled over by the, by the Japanese. And the Chinese came up with this strategy. It's pretty funny. They would bring out a sniper and stick him in the bush. And then he would shoot at the tank. He just bounced off, right? And so this guy in the tank was like, what? And then it wouldn't, it stopped for a long while. And then out of nowhere, boom! There's someone out there. There's someone out there shooting at us. They'd wait a while. And then it, boom! And it was like a dead on shot, too. So it was like, who is this? What's going on? And so what would happen after the third or fourth time doing this is the Japanese guy who was manning the tank would be so curious to see if he could see where this is coming from. He'd stick his head out. <laughs> that was the Chinese strategy. You want to know what the enemy's strategy is? The enemy doesn't want you in that tank. The enemy is scared to death that you will enter into your fortification. And so he's going to do whatever he can. This is. <laughs> we have to stay in Christ, otherwise we are vulnerable. And the enemy knows that. There is one secret to realizing everything in Romans 6, and that is to be in him. Okay, there's a couple things, and I'm going to dance around a little on some of these things, but basically, <clears throat> look at this, it says, but what if I don't feel dead? Because I don't feel dead, this isn't my personal experience. It is so dangerous for you to try and validate the truth of Scripture based on what you feel. This is what God says, and he says it without a stutter. If he says, do you trust me? I'm telling you what is fact. Are you going to listen to your experience? Are you going to listen to the enemy? Are you going to listen to the world? Are you going to listen to the Christian culture? Are you going to listen to me? Because I'm speaking to you right now. And I'm saying that your old man died with me 2,000 years ago. And your old man no longer has sway over you. So what he says, you'll notice if you go back to Romans 6, that I italicize certain words. Know ye not. And then look a little lower. Knowing this. Knowing that. Three times. Knowing. Our issue is one of revelation. Knowing. We don't know this to be true. You know that if you don't know something to be true, you will not take advantage of it. If you, have you ever had one of those situations where there's some uh, thing that the community is offering, you know, like a July 4th parade, and you didn't know about it? You say, I didn't know about that. And guess what? You weren't there. You didn't take advantage of it. It was free. There were free hot dogs there. And guess what? You didn't stick one in your mouth. Why? Because you didn't know about it. It, it has nothing to do with the fact. You can't say, well, I didn't experience it. I didn't taste one of those hot dogs. It didn't happen. That's ridiculous. It did happen, and just because you weren't there to experience it or you didn't go out of your way to enjoy it does not mean it wasn't real. 
You cannot validate the truth of Scripture based on your personal experience. You validate the truth of Scripture based on the fact that God said it, and guess what? You've heard me say this before. Am I going to say it again? I will. He cannot lie. He cannot lie. It is physically, spiritually, ethically impossible for God to violate his word. So therefore, when he says it, you can take it as truth. And when you can know this, when you can say, guess what? I know it. How do you know it? God said it. It's that simple. You know that any kid can understand this? If we teach our children from a young age this truth, guess what? They just, they just believe it. They don't have all the baggage of all their years of trying to live righteously and failing. But you must enter into Christ. And you must know this to be true. Second stage. You must reckon it as true. You must count it as your reality moving forward. And when the enemy starts baiting you, guess what your new reality is? Sin doesn't have power over me. It doesn't have control. Enemy, silence. Give him the word of God back in his face. He cannot argue with the word of God, and you speak it straight to him. I am dead to sin. You cannot mess with me on this point. I know what Jesus Christ did. I was in him when he died. But the enemy says, how do you explain that? I don't know. I was. He says I was. That's all that matters to me. That's good enough for me. You reckon it as so. And if you know it, then you can respond to it. When you know it, you can respond to it. There was this one man, the same guy that was talking about the fact that for seven years in his Christianity, he was always trying to reckon it. He said he couldn't. He couldn't reckon it because he didn't know it. He didn't know it. It wasn't true to him. It wasn't reality to him. He literally one day received what he always says, a revelation of the cross. Remember how I was talking about Reese Howells? And he said he saw the cross. Guy grew up in a Christian home, and then one day he saw the cross. And when you see the cross, it changes you. You realize this is what happened. Jesus did it for me. And you can now reckon. Reckoning takes no effort when you know it. But if you don't know it, you can't reckon. Because you feel like you're in an accounting situation and you're trying to be a wishful thinker. I have $1,000. You really don't. But you're going to write it in your books anyways. Why would you do that? Who's that helping? That's wishful thinking. That's not truth. That's why God chooses to use the word reckoning. Because it's an issue of fact. You do not reckon with fables. You reckon with facts. When you're balancing your checkbook, you reckon with facts. You don't, you know, say, you know what, I really want to feel better about my day, so I'm going to add an extra $100 to my checking account. Imaginary dollars. You don't do that unless you want to ruin your, you know, financial world. You cannot do that. You work with facts, and Paul uses a term known as reckoning that deals with facts. You reckon it, why? Because it's true. How do you know it's true? I know it to be true. Why? Because God said it. Seems like funny logic to many people in this world. To me, it makes total sense. That's what's funny about it. This makes total sense to me. I, the only reason I call it preposterous is because I know what it sounds like. But it makes total sense to me. Okay, the other illustration. I used a tank earlier. The plane. Now, I've... It sounded like that one. The plane. Do you guys remember that years ago? The plane. Uh, the plane illustration. Now, some of you I've explained this to before. And so you've heard this. But I want you to refresh this illustration. That is, there is a law known as the law of gravity. And this law just does you in. 
You know, because you really want to fly. And guess what? You can't. You're built as a human. And God didn't give us wings. We, I mean, we can jump off a cliff and feel like we're flying, but that leads to death. Okay, so in other words, you can desire to fly, but you can't because the law of gravity trumps any desire you have. And this is the way most of us are as Christians. We have a desire. We esteem flying because God says you have to fly. You have to fly. That's perfect righteousness. Now, I'm, I'm expanding some things. That's not actually true, okay? Don't, don't take that and go, I never said that we're supposed to fly. Okay? This is a metaphor. Okay? As if God's call to us, his law to us, is you have to fly. And we're like, I have nothing in me. This is talking about Romans 7. I have nothing in me that can perform that flight, God. I don't know how to do this. Woe is me because I have to fly to gain your favor and I can't. No matter how hard we try, we could, you know, come up with all sorts of contraptions and inventions. We cannot fly because the law of gravity holds us in our place. You can try and jump. You will only get a few feet in the air and you will come back down. That's a miserable reality when you have to fly. But there is a law that trumps the law of gravity, known as the law of aerodynamics. And so when you have a plane, and let's imagine that this plane is Jesus Christ, and you simply, this is as easy as it is, and this bothers many of us as Christians because we like, some of us are high achievers. And we're like, I need to be more complicated than this, Eric. That's the way I feel. It's funny, I have some psychological you know, shunt that comes in and it's like, oh no, that's going to be too wide of a, an entryway for people. Yeah, you wouldn't believe how few people choose to accept it. And that is, Jesus says, enter into me. Because he says, know this to be true. Reckon it is so. And then the third thing, present yourself unto me. The term in the, in the King James is yield, which means to allow. But there's a deeper understanding. That's why I put the word present in parentheses, because that's almost a more accurate way of describing the Greek word, of laying yourself before him, of laying your body, presenting your members before him and saying, God, this is yours. And so when you believe something to be true, you act upon it. That's why the term yield and present is so important. If you truly reckon this to be so, then what will you do about it? He says, I have made a plane, and this plane is myself. Jesus Christ, the sacrifice upon the cross. What happened on the cross? It's a plane, and if you enter into it, it will trump the law of aerodynamics. The law of sin, or the law of sin and death, or the law of gravity has been defeated in me. In the law of aerodynamics, in this plane, you will find that it is dead. You're like, well, I'm on the out you're on the outside of the plane, right? You've been crawling around on the outside of the plane most of your Christian walk. And every time the plane starts to move, you slide up. It's that one sound of sliding down a, a wall. <laughs> Wouldn't you say this is a great description of us as Christians? We're like on this plane, like, I'm okay, I'm on the plane. I'm on the plane, and then it starts to move, and we're like, <laughs> and we find ourselves not just on the side of it, but we're falling off, and then these tires are coming towards us. We're like, oh no! And we're like scripting out of the way, going, that didn't work. We keep looking back at this plane, it's taking off again, and we're like, I can't get this right. Maybe God didn't intend me to be associated with this plane because it's, it's impossible to be able to share in the strength that it has. It keeps saying that it's flying. I know it does. I believe God can fly. I believe Jesus lived the sinless life. I believe he can do that. But I can't. You enter into the plane. You enter in him. When you enter in, you know what happens? This is what, this is what baptism is. 
When you understand baptism, this is the statement throughout all of Christian history of what baptism is. It's knowing this to be true. I died with Christ. My old man was crucified. I reckon it is so. What's the next step? Baptism. It's a, it's a universal declaration of where you stand. I am dead in him. And when I go under the water, I am declaring to the heavenlies that I have died. And when I come up, and that he is alive within me. And this, I share in his death and his resurrection. You enter into the plane. That's what baptism is. You are baptized into his death and into his life. And you now share in all that he is. Remember everything that was in that little kernel of corn? He spent it. He put it in the ground. Why? So that he would not abide alone. He wanted to bring you on the adventure. And he came up with the way of getting all that was in him in you. That's the miracle of Calvary. That's the miracle of the resurrection life. Is he took everything that was in that seed. And it's impressive. It's God. And it's everything God is. It's victory. It's triumph. It's majesty. It's the inheritance of heaven. It's exceeding joy. It's peace that passes all understanding. It's love unlimited. It is everything that God is. And he literally gave it up. Why? So that we can have it. And he says, are you willing to enter into me? Are you willing to give up your life? Because when you enter in through baptism, the symbol of baptism, baptism isn't what saves you, by the way. It's a symbol. It's merely a statement of you reckoning and then presenting yourself before God. Saying, I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. You're responding to the work of the cross on your behalf, and you enter into the plane. That's what's supposed to happen, is you enter into him, but when you enter into him, guess what? You no longer have a will of your own. You're not your own. You live in him, and you have your life in him. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives. Now, you'll notice two different contrary things. I'm saying in Christ, and then you'll see that Paul also whips out this concept of us being, or Christ being in us. Well, this guy is confused. He goes from Romans 6 to Romans 7. What's the deal here? Oh, it's profound. It's beautiful. The reason we enter into Christ is so that he can enter into us. When we are clothed in Christ, the way is made for all of who he is to enter into us. And that's how Christianity works. It's us being in him so that he can be in us. And then he takes this body which is useless to the kingdom of heaven without this happening. And he makes it work. And as we remain in that plane, as long as you remain in that plane, the law of aerodynamics has no power over you. And here's the key question. Is the law of aerodynamics still in, or I'm sorry, the law, now you say aerodynamics, okay. The law of gravity has no power over you. Well, I can really confuse you too. If you remain in that plane, the law of gravity has no effect on you. It cannot keep you down. But if you get cocky, if you stick your head out of the tank, there's a sniper waiting to get you. And the enemy, his entire game, is being a sniper in the bush. That's his game. He has no power. He can't come up and take the plane, rip it apart, and grab you out of it. Just let him try. You should even say that to him. Just try. You can't touch me as long as I'm in Christ. He knows it. He cannot have you. You remain in Jesus Christ, and you are preserved. Here's my mental picture that I've been working on this week. Remember that I, I've talked about the gradient of holiness? Some of you have heard me talk about it. You know that out of all the universe, God chose earth. 
Out of all the earth, God chose Israel. Out of all of Israel, God chose Jerusalem as the most holy place, the most holy nation, the most holy city. And then out of all of Jerusalem, he chose the Temple Mount as the most holy place in all the universe, by the way. And then in that Temple Mount, there's three gradients of holiness to the temple. The outer court, the inner court, or the holy place, and then the most holy place. And I've said that the most holy place in all the universe is the Holy of Holies. You know, I want to amend that. The most holy place in all the universe is a place, a specific spot within the Holy of Holies, known as the Ark of Covenant. That is the most holy place. That is literally where the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood. And when Jesus came in to the real temple in heaven, he took his own blood and sprinkled it upon the lid of mercy, the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark. And inside that Ark is everything that is Jesus, by the way. The pot of manna. He is the bread that has come down from heaven. Revealed in the New Testament. He is the manna. He is the bread come down from heaven to feed us. And unless we eat of his body, we can have no part in it. He is the, the rod of Aaron that budded. It is life out of death. It is the authority of a rod. It is, it is an extraordinary dimension to who the rod is. And it's Jesus Christ. He is the law of covenant. He is the Ten Commandments. Perfect righteousness revealed in human form. It's Jesus that's Jesus. And guess what? The Ark of Covenant has space. There's space to enter in. Remember how I said if you're going to enter in, you have to have space? Well, out of all the things, it's not just a piece of furniture in there. There's actually space. And when you enter into him, when you enter into that covenant with him, on top of it is a seal of his blood. Nothing can touch you. You are under covenant with me. You are in me. You are under my blood. And then all that he is is able to enter into you. Now, I don't know if that's the best picture for practical living in Christianity. You're in this little box in a, in a holy place. I don't know if that gives you freedom to know, like, oh, no, now I know how I'm living for Christ. However, it is a healthy metaphor for understanding what it means. That this is, you know, that's exactly where the oracle of God is. That's where he speaks to his children. That's where the blood is. That's where the artifacts of remembrance are to say, this is what has been accomplished for my people. Anyone tries to mess with the Ark of Covenant in the Old Testament, it doesn't go well. And it will not go well for anyone that tries to mess with you. Because you are in Christ. And so if you recognize that, if you recognize who you are in, you recognize that Dagon will fall flat on his face, his head will come off, his, his arms will fall off, I and mean, he has nothing on you. The most powerful nations of this earth will crumble the dust before you as you simply walk forward in him. So, if we were to, you know, the next, the top of the next page, I have this concept of from, going from in Adam to in Jesus. All of us are in Adam, and as a result, we have this old man. Well, to be honest, that's not a fun place to live, and that's why the good news is good news. Because the good news of the gospel gets us out of Adam and into Jesus. At least it's supposed to. Unfortunately, today, a lot of us have a hybrid good news, which keeps us in Adam, but gives us eternal life because we pray to prayer. That isn't the purpose of Christianity, though. The purpose of Christianity isn't to just get you into heaven. The purpose of Christianity is to get God into you. That's what changes you, and that's what gives the whole substance to the gospel meaning. It's about God getting you, getting what is his due, gaining the reward of his suffering, which is you in totality. Not just interested in giving you a pass into heaven. That just happens to be a nice feature. Okay, so you'll see this. I have four things on the left and four things on the right. 
How are we supposed to pray when we pray? In the name of what, Eric? That's how most of us pray. Now, probably, you probably don't uh, invoke the name of Eric. It wouldn't do you much good. <laughs> you invoke the name of Jesus. Most of us invoke our own name. And if, if the demonic host came before us and says, on what grounds? Well, I've been working really hard. I've been praying hard. I've been studying hard. It's on my, in my name that I'm going to ask for this. Oh, that doesn't work. And you'll realize that very quickly. And most of us do pray in the name of Jesus, but not truly, because we're not in him. We're not in him when we're praying. When you are in the Ark of Covenant, imagine it has legs on it or wheels on it, moving into battle. You have a little confidence. And guess what? You say, in the name of the one who built this, in the name of Jesus Christ, you will fall down flat before me. You resist the devil, and he flees. Why? Because you have some presence about you? No, God has presence about himself. That is the secret to Christianity. You enter into him, and you pray from that position. And when you pray from in him, it says, when you pray in my name, anything you ask will be given you. Most of us pray outside of him. We're outside the plane, and we're asking for things that are inside the plane. There are things that should only be asked when you're inside the plane. And if you were inside the plane asking, guess what? They would succeed. You would see the answer to your prayer. The secret is you must enter into him. You must live inside of him. You must be in who he is. You must be shielded by his work upon the cross, not by any of your work. We have in disobedience or in covenant. We have in sin or in Christ. These are the terms used in scripture. You can live in sin, and guess what? You will die. Or you can live in Christ. And most of us think that we have to live in sin, but we are covered by a blood of Christ. And that's our version of Christianity, as opposed to living in Christ and having the merits of his blood seal us and protect us. And if we ever do stick our head up out of the tank, which by the way, I have done, and we get hit with the sniper's bullet, guess what? We live in a mercy seat. We live in a seat of mercy in the same way that he interceded us for us back then. He interceded for us back then. He intercedes for us now. And he is still our protection. And he still will shut up the mouth of the accuser and say, this is my child. And he is cleansed in my presence. That is the reality. Our conclusion isn't, well, then maybe I should keep sinning. Paul says, God forbid. He's given you everything you need. That's his entire way of following up that argument. Just don't you realize that your old man was crucified with Christ? We were in Christ 2,000 years ago. That death was our death. And the only way for us to break covenant grounds with the old covenant, to no longer live under the law, is we have to die. And guess what? We did. You're saying, I don't feel like I died. Don't base this on your feelings. I use an illustration when I'm talking about manhood of a hammer. And I, I say that men today are basically used as pillow fluffers. And so we come in and, you know, this, this older lady takes us and fluffs a pillow every night before she goes to bed. That's just our job description. So we fluff pillows. And if all you've ever done is fluff pillows, and someone says you're built for so much more, you can say, well, you know, I don't feel much like a hammer. You know, because if you've never realized what it is that is true about you, what it is that Jesus Christ did with you, what is truly factual, then you will continue to be a pillow fluffer. 
You will never get out of this routine of just submitting yourself and being used for acts of ridiculousness. You may not feel like a hammer. You may not feel like you are dead to sin. It has nothing to do with the feeling. It has everything to do with the realities of what Jesus Christ has spoken, what he has promised, what he has acted on your behalf. There is a reason why we come together and we say he is risen. He is risen indeed. There's a reason why it's called ridiculous, what was the term? Ridiculously glad, uh, hilariously glad. Hilarious life. Oh, hilarious life, that's right. Hilarious life. Hilarious. This is ridiculous. Are you saying that I literally have freedom that I can enter into Jesus Christ? Most of us say, what does that mean? If I enter into Jesus Christ, what does that mean? I have to give something up? Well, you get off that. Well, you get life. Why would you not be willing to give up whatever it takes to get life? We're so afraid of what it's going to cost us that we miss the blessing of it. And that is the fullness of life. It is no longer I who live. We're very afraid of dying. But we no longer live. That's a fact. There are things you have to wrestle for in Christianity. And there's other things you just need to reckon as true. There are things that you'll have to grab a hold of God for and wrestle. And there are other things you simply have to say, I see it. I reckon it. Here, God, take it. Make it my reality. This is not something you need to wrestle with. This is something you need to reckon. It is already in your bank account. Realize it. Start spending the currency. Believe it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be rescued. And you will be delivered. You will be saved. That doesn't just mean saved from hell. That means saved today from your sin. It's a deliverance from all the enemy has to destroy you. You have the means, and it's Jesus Christ, and it's already done. Okay, I just picked out a handful. What I would encourage you all to do is do a study on in Christ this week. Just enjoy it. Because what is found in Christ is so utterly amazing. It is beautiful. Who wouldn't want it? Especially when God says it's yours for the taking. Why would you be on the floor eating scraps? When God says, could you stand up and eat the feast? I made you a feast. We're on the floor with little crumbs saying, thank you for the crumb. And it's good that we're appreciative of the crumb. And it's good that we're after the crumb. But God has so much more and we're eating crumbs. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh, near, by the blood of Christ. Those of you that were afar off, that were trying to live your Christianity, just couldn't feel you could get it done. Jesus has done it when you enter into Christ. It's his blood that draws you near, and you can be near him for eternity. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, listen to this, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a fact. That is a statement that you need to know, and you need to reckon, and you need to begin to live out. You are a new creation. If you enter into Christ, that's the reality for those that are in him. Don't be sliding along the side of the plane. Be in the plane. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's a statement all over again. That's Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life, that's the law of aerodynamics, in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of gravity. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. I don't care if you haven't experienced this. When you're walking that ridgepole, stay focused on fact. 
and you won't walk. If you turn around and look at your experience, which the enemy will do, he will cry out as loud as he can to get you to turn around and say, well, when have you experienced this in your life? It literally says, which always, that's a big word, always, causes us to triumph in Christ and making, make it manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. That is amazing. And these are statements of fact. And I'm not delusional. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places where? In Christ. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places where? In Christ. You ever had that statement? I don't feel like I'm in heavenly places. Supposedly I'm seated in heavenly places. You're seated in heavenly places in Christ. Just as you were dead on the cross 2,000 years ago. You may not feel it, but it's a reality, which means you share in his very authority that he has seated at the right hand of the Father. You are in him, just as you were in him then. That's the reality of how Christianity works. For we are his workmanship. Where were we created? We were created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's a story in Greek mythology. Uh, remember the sirens? There's a siren coastline. And the sirens are these like mermaid type of creatures that uh, are obviously very alluring, uh, as, as the story goes with Homer. Uh, and so we have uh, the great and mighty Ulysses that is assigned to take his ship past the siren coastline, and no captain has ever been able to make it. Okay, so Ulysses has his work cut out for him. And Ulysses, the reason you could applaud Ulysses at any level is because he knows that he is a man. And he knows that he has a vulnerability to the sirens. And so as he begins to approach the siren coastline, he takes precaution. And so he sticks, or actually what he does is he sticks uh, beeswax, I think it was, into all of his crew's ears. But he wanted to know what these other captains were experiencing because every other captain that had gone by was lured in by the sweet song of the, the sirens and literally crashed upon the rocks to their death. Everyone. And so he wants to know what is so good about the siren song. And so he has beeswax in all of the ears of all his crew and they tie him to the mast. He asked them to tie him to the mast. And no matter what I say, no matter what hand movements I make during this, if I tell you, you know, even threaten you with, you know, beating to the cyclops, do not listen to me, because I will be insane as we go past the siren coastline. But he wanted to hear it. And so he's tied to the bass, all the other crew, they can't hear it, so they're fine. And meanwhile, poor Ulysses made the biggest mistake of his life, <laughs> because it's killing him. I have to turn the ship, please! He's yelling out, but they can't hear it. So he makes it past, and he's just, you know, he's exhausted by the time they get past it. Miserable, but he made it. Welcome to many of our Christian lives. <laughs> Who cares if you make it? That's not triumph. That's misery. You might make it past the siren coastline, but is there a better way? Can any of us come up with a better way? Because the siren coastline's sitting there. That temptation's sitting there. We're in the, the, the pit of the enemy here. This is his lair. How in the world are we supposed to make it through this life? Well, there's another story in Greek mythology, and I don't have a clue how Homer came up with this because it's really good. And it has some, some really deep spiritual st stuff here. But his name was Orpheus, 
And he was a different sort of captain. And he made the same journey. And Orpheus had a special instrument. He was a musician. And his crew loved him. He was just such a great leader. And they respected him. And at a certain point, when the Siren coastline was getting near, uh, Orpheus called for his instrument, which is some type of violin. violin. And so all the crew brought it, and they loved when their, when their uh, captain would play for them. So everyone sat around, and he played for them, a song of his own making. And pretty soon, the Siren coastline was in the distance, and Orpheus put down uh, his instrument. The crew never even noticed that they passed the Siren coastline. How? Because they heard a sweet song. That's Christianity. We are not allured by the enemy's bait. Why? Because we are transfixed with God. That is how it works. We are to fall in love with the beauty of our king. He's given us everything we need because we are not in Ulysses' ship. We are in Orpheus' ship. And it works. It works. This is how it works, but you must know it, you must reckon it, and then you must present your body unto Jesus Christ and allow him to have it. And he will work this reality in and through you for the rest of your life. Because there's more dimension to it. You have to walk in the Spirit. You have to bear your cross daily. There is more to it. But this is the entry point. This is how it starts to access the inner terrain of that plane. You must know it is true. You must believe it is true. You must reckon it is true. And then you must enter in. You must make it your reality. If God has made a way into the Holy of Holies, take advantage of it. And if he opens up the lid to that covenant and says, enter in, let me seal you in by my blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, my blood. You will be preserved for my purposes. And nothing can separate you. Lord, we want to be in you. For those of us that are struggling, just knowing, seeing, beholding the cross, surveying the cross, recognizing that it was our cross, it was yours, Lord Jesus, but we shared it, and we died in it. Our old man died so that the new man, Jesus Christ, could live within us. And as we were baptized into your death, we were also baptized into your resurrection life. Lord Jesus, may we see it, may we know it, and may we reckon it is true and live accordingly from this day forward. Lord, if there are some of us that need to truly be baptized, truly baptized, to say, to declare to the heavens that we no longer live, that we identify in Christ's death, and it is no longer our life, but it is his. Lord Jesus, bring us to that point where we understand this in the depths of our soul and we live it. We don't just hear the words. We don't just read the scriptures. But we acknowledge them. We reckon them as true. And that we reckon them as our own. Precious Jesus, thank you for what you've done. You are risen. You are risen indeed. And we praise you. We speak at the highest level saying you are our God, our King. And we love you. We're so grateful for what you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May we live in this reality from this day forward. 